Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Major developments this evening in the special counsel's investigations of Donald Trump. Mark Meadows, the chief of staff by Donald Trump's side in his final months of the administration, testifying to a federal grand jury. And today we also learned of a Trump grand jury in Miami for the classified documents investigation. Does that mean a trial would be held in Florida? Our panel reads the tea leaves tonight. Plus, a new vending machine in New York City stocked not with snacks, but with free drug supplies, Narcan, fentanyl test strips, and crack pipes. It's supposed to save lives, but will it? And something astonishing happened in golf today. The PGA Tour officials who had condemned the Saudi Live Golf Tour today decided to partner with them. So now, how does the PGA commissioner explain his own comments from last year? As it relates to the families of 9-11, I have two families that are close to me that lost loved ones. And so my heart goes out to them. And I would ask, you know, any player that has left or any player that would ever consider leaving, have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour? When they see the impact that we're having on this game together, there will be a lot of smiles on people's faces. Okay, we will get into all of that in the program. But let's begin with the big news that former top Trump official Mark Meadows has testified to a grand jury. Meadows was not just Trump's chief of staff. He was also tasked with overseeing presidential records. So chances are he may have a lot to say. Let's bring in our panel. CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed is here. Also, Chris Whipple, who's written extensively about the role of chiefs, uh, White House chiefs of staff. We also have Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Mm-hmm. And former chief assistant district attorney of the Manhattan DA's office, uh, and also Josh Barrow, host of the Very Serious Podcast. I hope that I got that right, Karen. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. Okay, next, um, Paula, tell us in terms of Mark Meadows testifying, was this about the documents case? Do we know, or was this about um, January sixth and attempts to overturn the election results? So at this point, it's unclear if he testified in both investigations or just one. But as you know, Allison, he would have a lot to talk about with investigators in either case because he's not just a witness. He is the witness. January 6th, I mean, the House Select Committee investigating that day, the events surrounding January 6th, efforts to overturn the election, came to the conclusion that when it comes to that investigation, all roads lead to Mark Meadows. And increasingly, in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation, we're finding that he is truly someone of value there, too. Not only was he at the White House when things were being packed up at the end of the administration, but this bombshell audio recording that we broke last week, that was recorded by Mark Meadows' autobiographers. They'd have a lot of questions for him. 
And this has been a mystery swirling around Trump world for the past several months. What is going on with Mark Meadows? There was no communication between his legal team and the Trump lawyers. So this has been one of the biggest questions in this investigation. Now that we know that he has testified, I mean, Allison, that really tells us that particularly the Mar-a-Lago documents case is likely at the very, very end before they make a charging decision. Hmm. Okay, so Chris, obviously you have focused on chiefs of staff. And you also have awarded Mark Meadows um, the worst chief of staff in history title. So I'm just wondering um, why he earns that and how you think his testifying would go. Well, first, I I really do agree that this is a potentially really important development. We know from the Times reporting, among others, that uh, Meadows has testified. What we don't know is the extent to which he's really cooperating with Jack Smith. But it's a big deal because um, he's at the center of everything with Trump, not just the classified documents, but even the the Georgia probe. Uh, He orchestrated and participated in that phone call, the shakedown for 11,780 votes. And he was intimately involved, obviously, in the January 6th insurrection. He was holding, virtually holding Trump's coat as he went out on the ellipse to uh, to incite the mob to attack the Capitol. So it's a very big deal. I think that, um, you know, again, Meadows, there used to be a, a, a stiff competition for the title of worst White House chief of staff in history. After all, H.R. Haldeman was a contender and went to prison for Watergate crimes. But in my view, Mark Meadows has clinched that title by a country mile. Uh, and all you have to do is look at um, the his participation in the bungling of a once in a century pandemic and and being intimately involved in uh, the attempted overthrow of the U.S. government on January 6th. Uh, he practically makes Haldeman look like a choir boy in that respect. So, Karen, um, read the tea leaves here for us from what you know about his testifying before the grand jury. Is it possible he would have gone in there and just pleaded the fifth or do you see telltale signs of something else? So his lawyer gave a statement that talked about how, without saying what he testified to, he said he had maintains that he tells the truth. He comes in and tells the truth when compelled to. That tells me that he testified. He otherwise he would have said he took the fifth or whatever. But he made it a point to say that he testified truthfully when compelled to, so or when called to. So I think that tells us that he testified and he was a major witness in the grand jury. I agree. When we saw the select committee with the hearings and and you everything led to Meadows, so much so that we were wondering, is this going, is he going to be a target or is he going to cooperate and testify? Because he really is the linchpin to all of these cases, I think. So Josh, just to remind people of Mm -hmm. how central he was, Cassidy Hutchinson, his, uh, one of his aides, testified to what he was doing as the mob was gathering on January 6th and at the Capitol, in fact. So here's what she said about Meadows. And I remember Pat saying to him something to the effect of the rioters have gotten to the Capitol, Mark. We need to go down and see the president now. And Mark looked up at him and said, he doesn't want to do anything, Pat. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. 
Your thoughts on what's happening now? Yeah, I mean, I think he's up there with Mike Pence in terms of being the very central people that you bring in toward the end of this investigation. So I think that, that I think this is one of several signs. There was also the news reporting about Donald Trump having been told by his attorneys that he should be expect to be indicted, at least in the documents case. These are these are signs of a, of a very mature investigation. Um, and you know, I, I certainly agree that he was he was not a uh, an exemplary chief of staff. Um, but I, I don't know what it what it additionally tells us that Mark Meadows has been brought in at least about the timing of this investigation, given that we already knew about Mike Pence, um, that we already knew that they had gotten up toward the top of what it was that they, that they were investigating. Um, but yeah, no, I think that uh, I, I think the, the former president has very good reason to be worried about being indicted. Paul, it was interesting to hear former Attorney General Bill Barr talk about some of this today. Um, and he also agrees that um, something is happening and that we'll see Um, what Jack Smith decides, whether he is going to be charging, he said at some point this summer, um, or even I think he said early fall, which doesn't sound that imminent to us in the news business, but um, maybe in criminal justice, it's um, immediate. But here's what he said about Donald Trump's claims that all this is a witch hunt. So listen to this. I think if the, based on the facts, as the facts come out, I think over time people will see that this is not a case of the Department of Justice, you know, conducting a witch hunt. In fact, they approach this very delicately and with deference to the president. And this would have gone nowhere had the president just returned the documents. But he jerked them around for a year and a half. Paul, your thoughts? Well, 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 Allison, that's very interesting to hear from the former attorney general who really helped in many ways distort the other special counsel investigation into former President Trump, which was not only possible working with Russia, but also questions of obstruction. Remember, after that investigation concluded, he released sort of the top line findings in a way that was very favorable to former President Trump. He also launched a special uh, counsel, John Durham, to sort of investigate that investigation. He also uh, helped former President Trump Trump pursue a lot of sort of pet investigations, using the Justice Department to help former President Trump pursue a lot of so, so-called politically you know, motivated or what he would describe as politically motivated investigations, also pursuing people he perceived to be his political adversaries. So to see Attorney General Bill Bard now come out with this full-throated defense of the Justice Department, you know, I'm sure that the rank and file is happy to hear that, but it may be too little too late because he has gone a long way um, towards helping people uh, believe that the Justice Department is a, a partisan organization that is out to get former President Trump. And for some reason, only now does he see this special counsel as being valid and potentially a legitimate legal threat to his former boss. Hmm. Thank you for reminding us of all of that context. Um, Chris, um, former Attorney General Bill Barr also engaged in a little psychological analysis of his old boss, Donald Trump, today. So listen to what he had to say about that. He's so egotistical that he has this penchant for for conducting, you know, risky, reckless acts to show that he can sort of get away with it. It's part of asserting his his mm-hmm. his ego. And he's done this repeatedly at the expense of all the people who depend on him to conduct the public's business in an honorable way. And, you know, we saw that with both impeachments. And there's no excuse for what he did here. Your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, you know, the irony would be rich here if it does turn out that Mark Meadows is cooperating and helps to uh, bring Trump down or uh, or help his prosecution. Uh, Because if you think about if you think about Meadows 
it shouldn't be too surprising that uh, that he might be cooperating. And just think of who the guy is. I mean, this is not G. Gordon Liddy of White House plumbers fame, holding his hand over a candle and pledging loyalty and and toughness uh, to his boss. This is a guy who was the ultimate sycophant, the White House chief that Donald Trump always wanted. In my book, The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House, I described Meadows not so much as a chief of staff as a kind of glad handing maitre d'. He was not only a yes man to Trump, he was a yes man to almost everyone. He told them what they wanted to hear. And it would be a, a, a rich irony, I think, if he's starting to tell Jack Smith what he would like to hear. Mm. Friends, thank you very much for helping us understand the news this evening. Really appreciate seeing all of you. So coming up, the many tactics of Chris Christie in trying to deal with Donald Trump, from loyal ally to fierce critic. We'll take a trip down memory lane as Christie announces his bid for president and see which tactic he'll use for 2024. One lane, the Republican nomination, and he's in front of it. If you want to win, you better go right through him. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie announcing today that he's running for president. And one of his priorities is making sure Donald Trump loses. A lonely, self-consumed, self-serving mirror hog is not a leader. He is, for those of you who read the Harry Potter books, like Voldemort. He is he who shall not be named. Well, let me be clear, in case I have not been already. The person I am talking about, who is obsessed with the mirror, who never admits a mistake, who never admits a fault, and who always finds someone else and something else to blame for whatever goes wrong, but finds every reason to take credit for anything that goes right is Donald Trump. I feel like we got the reference even before he spelled it out. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just me. But so which strategy will Christie use this time against Donald Trump? Let's bring in the panel. We have Coleman Hughes, host of the Conversations with Coleman podcast. Josh Barrow is back. James Surowiecki, contributing writer at The Atlantic, is here, as is Jessica Washington, a senior reporter at The Root. Great to have all of you guys. So, Coleman, um, Chris Christie is fascinating to watch Mm -hmm. because he has gone through the gamut of emotions dealing with Donald Trump Mm -hmm. and tactics, I would say. So let's just rewind the clock for a minute and remind everybody in 2015, he was treating Trump when he was running for president the first time, Chris Christie and Donald Trump, he was treating him sort of as a regular competitor, Mm -hmm. just sort of going after what he thought were his shortcomings. So let's remind people of that moment. I just don't believe that the skills that you're talking about that Donald has are transferable to a governmental setting. I just don't. His facts are wrong. I know that. He knows it, too. I'm happy to take any observations he has, even if he can only do them in 140 characters or less. Okay, so he had clever quips, but it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And he ended up dropping out. And then he did something interesting. He stood shoulder to shoulder with Donald Trump after that and endorsed him. And I don't know if we have any... Do we, have, do we have just a video of this or do we sound? Okay, so watch this for a minute, Colin. He is rewriting the playbook. He is rewriting the playbook of American politics because he's providing strong leadership that's not dependent upon the status quo. And so uh, 
the best person to beat Hillary Clinton in November on that stage last night is undoubtedly Donald Trump. And you know what that loyalty got him? COVID. <laughs> that loyalty got him COVID because he then gave Donald Trump hours of debate prep time and he was not advised that Donald Trump had tested positive for COVID. So one more piece of sound I'd like to play for all of you is when Chris Christie realizes that Donald Trump, well, he blames Donald Trump for giving him COVID and landing him in the ICU. You had always suspected that you got it from the president. Is that right? Well, I, the only reason I suspected it was because he was the only person who I didn't know his testing regimen that was, I was in close contact with. All the other people, we spoke about so the fact that So did this confirm for you that you did, in fact, get it for the president? Oh, I or? think it's undeniable. Yeah. Okay. So here, fast forward to today. What will he do differently this time? Well, it seems like Christie's in a toxic relationship with Trump. I don't know if you, <laughs> you have a friend that they insist they're going to break up with their boyfriend, and you've heard it a thousand <laughs> times before. It's, it's something like that. But on a more serious note, he has been flip-flopping. Uh, it makes him come across as insincere, which he is. I think most of the things he said about Trump apply to himself. Chris Christie is not particularly good at admitting to mistakes. Um, you know, Bridgegate, as a, as a New Jersey kid, I have to say, I don't think he's fully come clean on, you know, closing the Fort Lee access to the George Washington Bridge and creating traffic jams to get back at the mayor. Um, and, and so, you know, and he's someone that has clearly wanted to be president at least since like 2012, very soon after uh, becoming governor of New Jersey. So most of what he said about Trump applies to him. Now, is he flip-flopping or is, has he evolved? His position evolved on Trump. Well, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what's going on inside his head, but he's made clear in this two-hour town hall event that he did in New Hampshire that he intends to f- do a really frontal attack on Donald Trump in this, ca- in, in his, in this campaign. And I, I think this is... I, I, Chris Christie is not going to win this nomination, and I think Chris Christie is smart enough to know that he's not going to win this nomination. I think there's a legacy play here, which is that what Chris Christie is remembered for is Bridgegate and for enabling Donald Trump, because he didn't just endorse Donald Trump in the 2016 campaign. He was one of the first major national Republican figures to endorse him. It was like right after Jeff Sessions, at a time when lots of other prominent figures in the party were still trying to figure out how they could band together to stop Donald Trump. So, you know, in significant part, this is his fault. And he also, he got hoodwinked before, before the former president gave him COVID. In 2016, he, got, he was the chairman of the president's transition. He was supposed to be, if Donald Trump came in, he was going to help build out the White House. He's going to have a really central position. But Chris Christie also, when he was a federal prosecutor, he put Jared Kushner's father in prison. Jared Kushner hates him. And so, like, very shortly after the election, Chris Christie gets fired basically at the hand of Jared Kushner. So Chris Christie, for, you know, all of his, for all all of his supplication to Donald Trump, he didn't, he didn't become attorney general. He didn't become vice president. He got pushed out of the position that he had. And then he was still there several years later doing that debate prep in the 2020 election for the former president. Now, you know, I watched the town hall today. The criticisms that he's making of Donald Trump, whether or not they're sincere, are largely correct. Um, and I think it will be an interesting factor in this campaign to have him on debate stages and to have him, I, I expect him to be an essentially constant presence on cable news because cable loves people who talk about Trump, especially in the terms that Well, Chris and Christie also does. who are quippy and who say funny things yeah. and sound bites. I mean, it's not just that. He's great television. Yeah, he's great television. Yeah, but I, so I think, you know, even if he loses this campaign, it might be that something that Chris Christie will be remembered for politically, in addition to Bridgegate and enabling Donald Trump, will be maybe he plays a role, or, you know, I think his objective is maybe I play a role in stopping Donald Trump from getting the nomination, like I did with Marco Rubio in 2016, because people remember him for that, too. Yep. 
Jessica. Yeah, I just, it's so hard to watch him keep doing these flip-flops. Like, it's almost a little, it gets a little embarrassing almost but to witness. But is it a flip-flop? Because it wasn't a devoted, devoted, devoted critic. And so it was critic, devoted, critic, devoted. So you're, he's going back and forth. So it is a little hard to watch. And I think the other thing is, what do we know now that we couldn't have known in 2015? I mean, now he's saying he's evil, he's corrupt, all of these different things. What did we not, he not know in, you know, 2019? What, all of these things, it's like, okay, so now you're saying he's corrupt, you're saying all these things, but a lot of this was known. So I think that's what makes it feel less, you know, genuine. He hadn't tried to overthrow I, the U.S. government. That I mean, no, that's I think a, that's that you can tell a story about why yes, you learned something about Donald Trump. It's still pretty years. clear he was a bad guy in 2015. Sure, right. I'm just saying that we, he had we Trump did get university. New he had all kinds of scandals way back. I, the one thing, I mean, the one thing I'm interested in, I mean, like Josh said, right, Christie's not going to win, right? I mean, just simply because the lane he's in in the Republican Party is not where the Republican Party is, right? He's essentially a kind of semi-moderate. Northeastern Republican. There's no, there's no actual market for that in the Republican Party. So the question is, why is he doing it? I think some of it is legacy. Some of it may just be he wants to be in the mix. He likes being in the mix. He likes being on television and the rest of it. I am, though, fascinated by what it's going to be like to have him on stage, um, both in terms of what his dynamic with Trump is going to be like, because that could be super interesting. Um, and then also, what will he be like with DeSantis? Will he go after other candidates? DeSantis would be the only other one who really matters. Will he go after him the way he did against Rubio? Because he really did, although Rubio today tweeted out saying, like, he did not put me out of the race. <laughs> but of course, he did put him out of the race. I mean, everyone remembers that. And so I do think even if Christie only lasts through the debates and doesn't even make it to Iowa, it could still be really interesting to see how he changes the dynamic of the race just from being on stage with Trump. Thank you for all of your thoughts on this. Really interesting. It will be very interesting to see him on stage. Agreed. All right. So tune in tomorrow when Dana Bash moderates a CNN Republican town hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. That's tomorrow night at 9 Eastern. And then be sure to watch on Monday when Anderson Cooper moderates a CNN town hall with Chris Christie. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern. Also, don't miss Jake Tapper's one-on-one interview with Chris Christie. That's tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern on The Lead. All right. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court could soon do away with affirmative action. What happens then? We discuss that next. The Supreme Court could issue a major decision on affirmative action as early as this week. If they do away with it, what does that mean for college admissions? What does it mean for the country? My panel is back. Jessica, if the Supreme Court ends affirmative action, what happens? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is we don't know exactly what this ruling is going to say. They could say a myriad of things. They could make really strict limits. They could, you know, make it not as strict. But I think we're definitely going to see limits placed on affirmative action education. And the real concern is that this is the last tool we really have to integrate schools and education. You know, it has been cut back in um, elementary school, middle school, high school, all these kind of lower level education. And now we're going to see it um, in higher ed. And I think we are going to see some really negative impact in terms of diversity on campus. And let's just go back in time for a minute. Do you think affirmative action accomplished what it set out to do? 
I think it's a long-term goal. I think part of the problem is when you cut off the legs of affirmative action in you know, high school, middle school, elementary school, it makes it harder to make it effective at the higher ed level. So I think that's part of the problem. If you don't have you know, integration happening at those levels, and we know that's not happening in our nation, we know that we're still highly segregated as a country. Even in New York City, we're incredibly segregated in places that are ostensibly liberal. So I think if you only focus on higher education, then it won't ever accomplish those goals that we're set out to do. Your thoughts, Jess? Uh, I think, you know, the best proxy we have for it is what happened in California um, when Prop 209 passed in 1996, which essentially banned the use of affirmative action in all of the public universities. And, and we have some of those numbers that we can pull up. So, the, so black undergrad enrollment at UCLA in 1996, as you say, was at 6%. Ten years later, after they did away, uh, this is Michigan. Sorry, let's go back to California for a second, uh, because basically it was cut in half. Yeah. So ten years later, it was cut in half, and then then California took it upon itself. The schools to do, did, yeah. To, the schools did to do all sorts of, um, I guess, recruitment, yeah. et cetera, and they were able to themselves get the enrollment back up to six. Yeah. So that's what I think is what you'll see is that, and and the impact on the professional schools like law school, engineering will be even greater. But I think, so I think what you'll see in the short term, and I assume the court is going to do away with affirmative action in education. I assume that that's what will happen. And if they do that, I think what you'll see is in the short term, you will see a significant hit to diversity. Um, But, and if schools, and I think they do, that are doing this now want to keep their student bodies diverse, they'll have to just work a lot harder. And that's essentially what UCLA did, what University of California did, spent a lot more money on recruitment, a lot more money trying to get kids to um, come once they were admitted and the rest. And yeah, so, and it, and it was effective. Um, but you can already see the schools, colleges already starting to adapt. I mean, I do think some of the reasons why standardized tests are being phased out has something to do with them anticipating this, this and trying to figure out ways to, and I think they'll use other kinds of proxies. But in the short term, there's no, there's nothing that will take its place. So I think you're going to see a hit. Coleman, what do you think of affirmative action and the possible end well, you're right that California in 96 is the closest model we have. But what you got to understand about those numbers we just showed is it's not that those black kids that didn't go to UCLA didn't go to college. They went to other schools yeah. in the UC system. And for some of those kids, they may have, rather than being in the bottom of the class at UCLA when they're struggling behind their better prepared peers, maybe they're more in the middle of the class or maybe at the top of the class of a different UC school. And I think what we have to understand is what goes on under the name of affirmative action behind the scenes at these colleges is very ugly, right? I just, I want to read briefly from some of the discovery of this case, right? So this is at UNC, this is uh, admissions officers, and this is what they say. I just opened a brown girl who's an 810 on the SAT. The other one says, if it's brown and above a 1300, put them in for merit, right? This is how they're talking about kids, right? They're reducing everything to race, This is how they're talking about your kids when they apply to college, right? This is ugly stuff if we actually saw how the sausage gets made. So I think we should be celebrating the end of race-based affirmative action and really start addressing the actual problems with racial inequality, which is between the ages of 0 and 18, kids are going to awful schools. And that's where the focus should be. You agree, Jess? Uh, No. I mean, I I think that affirmative action, A, I you know, there obviously are exceptions, and some of this discovery is troubling if, you know, when kids are being spoken about like that. But I think oftentimes schools are not just looking at race. They're looking at qualified applicants, and they're saying, okay, holistically, how do we want our campus to look? How much is diversity going to be important? Because you have to understand, the schools are not just trying to pick kids who necessarily are, you have the best SAT score, or you have the best grades. They're trying to create a student body that is going to help kids learn to, you know, interact with other people who are different from them 
to, you know, succeed. And I think they're picking from a whole different host of, of qualities. So I don't think it's just they're saying, well, here's this black kid and we're going to put them in the school whether or not they're qualified. I don't think that's happening anywhere. I think it's important context when we talk about those numbers in California and the lawsuit against Harvard is that when you see declining black and Hispanic enrollment, one of the big counteracting effects is that you get exploding Asian enrollment at these schools. And that has been sort of an underlying political issue in, in, these, in these cases. It's that you had in some of the California schools, you have majority Asian student populations. And in, Har- in the Harvard case, you see clear st- d- discrimination against Asian American applicants, where basically you have Asian American applicants on average receiving lower sort of personality soft soft skills scores. And Harvard, their argument basically for why they weren't discriminating against Asians was more or less, no, really, the Asian applicants do on average have worse personalities. It was crazy. So I think, you know, when, when you talk about trying to build exactly the sort of the, 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 the demographic profile that you want in your campus, in the, in the case of Asian Americans, that is about imposing de facto quotas on, on Asian admission at some of the private universities. And I think it's very reasonable for the court to look at that and say that's a violation of the Civil Rights Act. But when you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to build a campus that looks like America, you don't just, you don't end up just increasing the representation of certain groups. You end up capping the representation of certain groups that would otherwise produce really large numbers of qualified applicants. Really interesting, guys. Thank you very much for all of your perspectives on that. We'll see what happens this week. Uh, Meanwhile, from bitter enemies to a shocking partnership, the PGA Tour announcing a unification agreement with the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour. We'll discuss how this happened next. Sworn enemies became partners today. Saudi-backed Live Golf and the PGA Tour announcing a stunning partnership that will reshape the world of golf. As part of this agreement, the two rivals will drop all pending litigation against each other. The partnership also ends more than a year-long feud, but it is reigniting a debate over money, morals, and sports washing. Joining me now is Alan Shipnuck, the author of Live and Let Die, an insider account of the saga set to be released in October, Alan, I think you may have to add an epilogue to your book. <laughs> How shocked were you when yeah. you heard what happened today? Well, it was a thunderbolt for the entire golf world. There's no doubt about it. Uh, following this story very closely for a while now, you, you could see this coming. Bo- both the PJ Tour and Live Golf are kind of on this, this path towards mutually assured destruction. Um, the, the tour was was spending money they didn't have to try and keep up with Live Golf. Uh, Live had built this whole product, but nobody was really paying attention, and it just didn't make sense long term for either side. And um, it that it happened so quickly, and that it was announced today of all days, it's it sort of in the middle of the heart of the season. Uh, it was a bit of a stunner, but I, I think it makes sense. I, I think. The war is over, and now it's going to be about who wins the peace. There's a lot of complexity here to sort through and a lot of unanswered questions, but it's a certainly momentous moment for an entire sport. For sure. And it may make sense financially for people, but explain how it makes sense in terms of principles. And I know I sound naive or Pollyanna-ish when I ask that, but that's what PGA had staked their position on. I mean, I don't have to tell you, Jay Monahan, the, the you know chief, the chair of PGA Tour, had said that he, his heart went out to the 9/11 families because how can they? How could these golfers, you know, be giving up their principles to go work for live golf with what the Saudis represent in terms of human rights? So now, how does he explain himself? 
Yeah, I mean, one of my best friends lost his wife on 9-11 in, in one of the planes. So I've, I've been sympathetic to that argument. At, this, at the same time, it's also a little naive how the world works. I mean, many of the PGA Tour's biggest sponsors, whether it's Coca-Cola or FedEx or Morgan Stanley, do a ton of business in Saudi Arabia. And all kinds of sports are now hosted uh, within the kingdom or or they, you know, the Saudis own European, European Premier League soccer teams. Uh, they have become enmeshed in big time sports around the globe. And so, Jay, you know, Jay Monahan was trying to play the morality card and that was all really all he had. You know, he was he was outgunned financially, but it didn't quite pass the smell test given how much business all the tour sponsors have done in Saudi Arabia. And I think reality finally caught up to him. And uh, it's definitely it's it's okay as as a golf fan or as a consumer to feel a little betrayed and to feel a little confused and and to be a little queasy about this because there are some hard questions about where the money is coming from but i think the headline is that money always wins and uh, that's in every sport that's in every industry and, and that's what happened here alan how about the players how about the players who took a principled stand or said they did and didn't take the seduction of the live money when it was being offered and dangled in front of them. How are they feeling? <laughs> they, they are displeased, uh, to say the <laughs> least. Um, there was, was serious money on the table. I mean, Hideki Matsuyama, the Masters champion from, from Japan, he was offered north of $300 million. Um, even a guy like Ricky Fowler, who hadn't won a tournament since 2019, he turned down $75 million. And uh, there was a tremendous pressure applied to them to stay loyal to the PGA Tour. And now all the players who did take the live money, they're going to get reintegrated back into the PGA Tour. And there's there's a lot of unhappiness. There's a lot of bitterness right now. But there's a way to make these guys whole. Uh, there's Now that the PGA Tour is giving up its nonprofit status and becoming a for-profit business, uh, there's no doubt that some of these guys are going are gonna to get some money on the side as – you could call it compensation. You, you could, it could be, um, it's, you could call it a bribe to, to, to be a good soldier. What there's a lot of ways to phrase it, but they're going to, they're, they're going to buy their happiness. So not quite the numbers they turned down. I don't think that's going to be possible because they've lost all their leverage. But, um, at the same time, the Saudis are going to pump billions of dollars into the entire ecosystem, of professional golf. And these guys are already playing for more money than they ever imagined possible. I mean, prices have doubled in one year. They're probably going to double again. So, these are very much first world problems. Um, you know, the, there's a little battle coming between the haves and the have mores in professional <laughs> golf, but all these guys are going to be okay. Alan, the book again is Live and Let Die, the inside story of the war between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. It is set to be released October 31st. It should be very interesting. All of your insider interviews with all of the players. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Okay, thanks for having me. And my panel is back. Yeah, I guess they're displeased with that uh, turning down the $75 million. <laughs> yeah. What do you guys think? Well, well, so you know what I find crazy here is, you know, the, one of the things that the PGA gets out of this is there was this antitrust lawsuit brought by Liv, basically said that PGA was being anti-competitive trying to keep players off the Lyft tour, and that lawsuit's going away. But there's also a government antitrust inquiry into professional golf right now. And the, the financial rationale that Alan just laid out there for why you'd have this merger is the PGA didn't like having to bid against a competitor for 
players. They didn't like this bidding war with their competitor, and so they're, they're merging with their competitor, and now they won't have to bid up anymore. That is classic anti-competitive behavior. Like you, it is, in general, you cannot fix your antitrust problems by merging with your larger competitor. You should be making your antitrust problems worse if you do that. So I, I, personally, I would like to see whether there's anything the government can pursue there, even though we don't have a private entity suing the PGA Tour here. Because really, I mean, again, the objective here is to keep is to keep more of the money off the table from going to the players that would otherwise go with this major commercial entrance. So, you know, I don't, I don't like this outcome, but I wonder if it's legal. I mean, I, the thing that's interesting to me is that it, it did come as a total surprise. I mean, I was shocked when it happened. But as Alan said, it shouldn't. And in fact, if you look at the history of professional sports, it was pretty much the predictable outcome. So in the past, you know, whenever you have an alternative league spring up, the American Football League and the National Football League, what ends up happening? They end up merging. The American Basketball Association and the National Basketball Association. Donald Trump, as you remember, uh, with the, the USFL, this was what he was trying to do. When they sued the NFL uh, for antitrust, what he really wanted to do was to get the NFL to but isn't essentially it force the merger. when you're talking about merging with um, a country that has such human rights oh, no, no. problems? From a moral point of view, yeah. yes, absolutely. And obviously Jay Monahan should never have said what he did uh, a year ago when he played the morality card, and it makes him look terrible now. But from an economic point of view, I actually think one of the underplayed aspects of this is that the Saudis— Obviously, they have more money than anyone, but they were losing tons of money on the live. They were spending tons of money. Nobody was watching. And and this now allows them to essentially invest in an entity that is going to be enormously profitable, partly because they has no, that it has no competition. So I think that's a big part of what's happening here. Can we dwell, though, for one second on the moral dimension of this? Yes. I think this is important, okay? Uh, I hate this trend of foreign regimes purchasing the souls of American athletes and American business people. Sports right? we, washing. Yeah, sports washing, right? We, we saw this with the NBA in China. You're not going to find an NBA player now that can talk about the treatment of the Uyghurs in China or the treatment of Hong Kong protesters. Soon you may not be able to find a, a golf player that can talk about the treatment of women in Saudi Arabia. And as an American, I love the ability to be able to criticize my own government and especially to, be, to criticize foreign regimes. And we are losing that bit by bit. Thank you. Thank you very much for this take. It was clearly a stunner for everybody, even Alan. Uh, Okay, next, a health and climate crisis unfolding as we speak tonight in New York City. Smoke from fires in Quebec, putting New York among the top five cities with the worst air pollution in the world. This is a live shot of what it looks like outside. This is not live. This is what it looked like, certainly when we were all driving in tonight. It's this crazy orange, dusky, smoky skyline there. Uh, More next. We are in the midst of a major climate event here in New York City tonight. Look at the smoke blanketing the city today. That is awesome. Usually you can see the tall skyscrapers, but not today. This is from more than 100 wildfires that are burning in Quebec, Canada and wafting south. New York is now one of the five cities with the worst air pollution in the world tonight alongside Dhaka, Bangladesh, Jakarta, Indonesia, and New Delhi, India. Here's the view of Yankee Stadium during tonight's home game against the Chicago White Sox. This level of pollution is unhealthy, obviously, but particularly for groups like the elderly, young children, and those with respiratory issues. All right, now to another health crisis and what New York City is doing about it. New York City has installed its first ever public health vending machine And it is stocked with some drug supplies like Narcan, 
kits, fentanyl, test strips, and crack pipes. It's also already been restocked, even though it was just installed yesterday. James and Coleman are back. So I, I certainly understand fentanyl strips. I certainly understand Narcan for an overdose. I don't entirely understand the putting crack pipes in there. I'm not sure if you guys have an explanation for why those are there. So, so the argument is some, similar to needle exchange. So crack pipes, in theory, if you reuse them, they can be uh, vehicles or transmission for HIV and um, uh, hep C. And so the idea is if you have clean crap pipes, you are going to reduce the number of people who catch these diseases and the like. Um, it's an idea that has actually been around for a while. It was the, Vancouver did it in 2014. Um, so that's the concept behind it. Uh, I think one of the strange things about this is the execution, just putting a vending machine in the middle of what seems to be just a yeah, residential area. Uh, when Vancouver did it, they actually... Well, it's a high drug use yeah, area, area of course, say. right, yeah. When Vancouver did it, they put it inside what they called a safe user resource center, which had other kinds of counseling and other... And that made a little more sense to me. This feels somewhat random and careless, but... Yeah, yeah. Coleman? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, you, you could argue at one level, this is just an admission that we've lost the war on drugs with every other strategy, right? Like, we can't stop the drugs from getting in the country. We can't prevent people from doing them. We can't cure addiction. So I guess the last resort is just to make it clean and safe. Well, also stop overdosing. I mean, yeah, I think that yeah. what they're trying yes, to do is stop, right. is just and triage the overdosing. I have no problem with, with the Narcan. And, um, I, you know, I, I think most fentanyl taxpayers, test. fentanyl test strips would say that's a good yeah. use of taxpayer funds. But, uh, you know, when it comes to the crack pipes, I think uh, that's an admission that the most we can do now is just have people do it in a clean way. And, and that's a pretty sad state of affairs. Yeah. We'll see how these go. Gentlemen, thank you for being here tonight. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. All right, coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories that they're working on for tomorrow. They're coming out right now. I'll join them momentarily. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters here. Sarah Fisher is with us. Miguel Marquez, Vanessa Yurkevich, and Jason Carroll. Also joining us with her D.C. reporting, Paula Reed. So two big headlines in the news tonight. First, Mark Meadows testified to a grand jury in the special counsel's probe. Of course, the investigation into Donald Trump. And also Chris Christie, former New Jersey governor, announcing he's running for president, saying that he wants to stop his old pal, Donald Trump, from becoming the nominee. So Paula and Sarah are here with their reporting, but let's start with Paula. Okay, so Paula, tell us what we know about Mark Meadows' testimony. Which investigation was he testifying for, do we know? It's unclear at this point, Allison, which investigation he testified in. It's also possible that he testified in both. But this has been one of the biggest questions in the ongoing special counsel investigation. What is going on with Mark Meadows? And even the Trump legal team uh, has conceded that, yeah, they hadn't been in communication with Meadows attorneys. And it was unclear if he was cooperating. You know, the former president tried uh, quite a while back to block 
Meadows from testifying before the grand jury, arguing executive privilege. He lost that battle. So we knew at some point Meadows would be testifying, but it has literally just been a complete black hole in terms of reporting on what exactly was going on. So this was a huge deal today. This is a very significant development because he could be an incredibly useful witness in either investigation. He is at the center of everything on January 6th, and he appears increasingly significant in the Mar-a-Lago documents probe as well. And Paula, wasn't he tasked with um, handling presidential records at the end of the administration? He was one of several people who would likely have insight into exactly how this happened, uh, sort of insight at what was going on at the end of the administration. Were you aware uh, that classified documents uh, were being packed up, that presidential records were not being returned uh, to the archives? We've always known that that could potentially be significant. But just last week, CNN and this bombshell report on this audio recording where Trump is, is revealing himself to allegedly have a classified document and even acknowledge the limits of his ability to classify classify, undercutting every defense he's put forward. Where did this recording come from? Mark Meadows' autobiographers. So the questions are, all right, well, what other things did they record as they were preparing this book? What else does Mark Meadows know? I mean, he's not just a witness. He is the witness. So this is incredibly significant and really does suggest that at this point, particularly with the Mar-a-Lago probe, they're just wrapping up loose ends at this point. Okay, so yeah, you have a question for Paul? Paul, it's Miguel here. I just, okay. if, if Mark Meadows' lawyers are not speaking to Donald Trump's lawyers or vice mm-hmm. versa, that must not be a very good sign for the Trump team. Yeah, absolutely. I've asked them. Uh, I've asked them many times with on camera and off camera. And I know in some of my conversations off camera with sources close to the legal team, I've been like, look, if you don't know what he's doing, I mean, this guy knows everything. Aren't you a little bit nervous? Uh, And some of them have conceded that, yeah, uh, they were they were a little bit concerned about that. I mean, this is someone who is as close to the former president as you could possibly be. And also someone with potential legal jeopardy. So someone who would be likely to strike a deal at this point, though, it's unclear exactly the nature uh, of his testimony, the extent to which he cooperated, or the biggest question of all, did he get immunity? Hmm. Right. Okay, so let's move on to um, other (coughs) big political news, at least today. And that's Chris Christie announcing that he is going to run for the 2024 presidential race. Um, So he seems to be, Sarah, a different guy than when he ran last in 2015 and 16. Yes. And you're asking the Jersey girl about this, (laughs) of course. You, You would know. So in 2015, Chris Christie announces his run for the candidacy in his high school alma mater in Livingston, New Jersey. And the message was that he is a guy who is hometown values, but he is a traditional Republican. And it's coming a year after Bridgegate. You'll remember it's time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. That was what propelled Chris Christie at the time sort of to the national stage. So now let's fast forward eight years. He is trying to run as a totally different person. Remember, in the first years of the Trump administration, Chris Christie backed Donald Trump. But it reversed after January 6th. And so his message is interesting for two reasons. One, where he announced. He announced in New Hampshire, not his hometown in New Jersey. One, you'll recall that in the last time he ran for presidency, that was a really hard state for him to win. He backed out after the New Hampshire caucus. But then two, his message was very anti-Trump, which is not what we saw last time. And so I think Chris Christie is using this as an opportunity to try a different strategy ahead of this next election. The one thing I will note, though, of course, anytime anyone enters a presidential race, it's to win, obviously. But I think for Chris Christie, it's also to beat Donald Trump. 
This is a two-pronged race for him. Hasn't he said as much? Hasn't he said that one of his goals or his priorities is to make sure that Donald Trump doesn't win? I, you know, yes, but I also think that is a part of his campaign strategy, right? If he frames this as, I'm doing something good for the country by sidelining this guy, that he knows is good for him politically. And there's some tension and bad blood. You know, he put Jared Kushner's father in jail, all, et cetera. <laughs> oh, you know, happened. just some of those things that happen. But but also, I mean, isn't the question how effective can he be? We know he can get under Trump's yeah. skin, but in the long run, how effective <clears throat> is it going to be going after Trump in this way? Good question. He's not the only one that's going to do it. I think he's going to be much more forthcoming than a lot of the other candidates. Like, I don't expect Mike Pence to come out swinging against Donald Trump. But what I think he will do is he will pull some of those anti-Trump voters away from Donald Trump in critical states, New Hampshire, of course, being one of them. The question is, is that enough to actually bring you to the nomination? And, you know, polling suggests likely not. Yeah, well, he's so disliked by so many Republicans. I can't imagine that he's the right vessel to carry that message against Donald Trump. I don't see it. And, you know, interestingly enough, not just Republicans, but I think people from his home state have been frustrated, too. After Sandy Hook, you'll remember those helicopter photos of him sitting on the beach. If you don't have the hometown support, I actually think that hits you in a large way. And it was very symbolic Mm -hmm. that he did not announce in our home state this time. Do you think that he has to reintroduce himself to people, both in his home state, but also across the U.S.? You know, he's really kind of been out of the spotlight for a little while. I wonder if this is like a reintroduction, a refreshing of himself to the public. Totally. He hasn't held public office for five years, and he hasn't been in the political game for a while. I will say Chris Christie, more than some of these other candidates, has been pounding the Sunday show circuit. He is somebody who makes himself very visible and has been very opinionated around Donald Trump. So he doesn't have so much to explain in terms of his positioning. But what I do think, to your point, he needs to do is focus now on likability. Mm -hmm. How can he become somebody that people want to root for in 2024? Well, I'm rooting for him, um, not politically, <laughs> but I'm certainly rooting for him as a journalist because I think he makes the race spicier. I oh, yeah. think that he's somebody who, as we've been playing some of his clips, he does speak in quips. He speaks in sound bites. He's he good does. at that. He's very he's, good at he's that. Jer- I mean, I also am a Jersey girl, and he's very Jersey. And I think I'm a Jersey girl, race, too. Oh, wow. Some wow. Jersey, a lot right? of Jersey in the house. There's a lot <laughs> of Jersey. And you can, it only makes things better, as I it think does. we all know. <laughs> and so I think that it, it's going to make the race more exciting with him. There. As long as he lasts. As long as he lasts, but also, Allison, to your point, I think a lot of candidates are entering this race and they have to test their message. They have to figure out to what extent can we be pro or anti-Trump? Can To what extent can we be somebody who is with mainstream Republican traditional party or can we be pulled to the far right? Chris Christie's tested every single message. So he can come out unabashed and unafraid. And to your point, I think that's not only going to be interesting for us as journalists to cover him, but there might be a shot that American people like that, too. And I think that's what he's going to have to ride on. Really interesting. Thank you very much for all of that reporting, Sarah. OK, coming up, there's been a major dam collapse in Ukraine, prompting flooding and mass evacuations. Who is responsible for this? Which side? We're going to get a report from Ukraine next. We have some new video to show you of a building being swept away after a critical Ukrainian dam was destroyed. Ukraine claims that Russia is responsible for this. Russia says it was Ukraine. The dam supplies drinking water to large areas of Ukraine and cools the reactors at the nearby Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Miguel is going to break some of this down for us. But first, we want to go to CNN's Fred Pleitkin, who is on the ground in Ukraine. 
Hi there, Allison. Well, this is a massive disaster that's obviously affecting a lot of people here in this part of Ukraine. And folks that we're speaking to are saying that all this happened extremely quickly. They say in the morning they were basically sitting in the dry. There was nothing going on. And then the water came into their homes, came into their neighborhoods, and it rose so quickly that many of them didn't manage to get to safety. Here's what we're learning. Masses of water gushing from the gaping hole in the destroyed Novokarhovka Dam in Russian-controlled territory here in south Ukraine. Massive flooding quickly inundating villages on both shores of the mighty Dnipro River, impacting areas controlled by Ukrainians and by the Russians. As you can see, there's a massive rescue effort going on here. The local authorities are using boats and also heavy trucks to get as many people out of the zone as they can. 65-year-old Nadezhda Chernyshova was stranded in her home with her cat Sonia for hours, fearing for her life. Now I'm not scared, she says, but there it was scary. Why, I ask? Because of the water. The water came and you don't know from where it comes and where it will go. The authorities here say they've evacuated hundreds of people throughout the day. At times, under Russian fire, the head of Kherson's military administration tells me. We have the water, he says. Mines, mines are floating to here, and this district is constantly being shelled. Two policemen were injured while evacuating people. Kiev blames Moscow for allegedly blowing up the dam, an angry Ukrainian president saying the Russians are trying to derail Ukraine's current battlefield gains. It was mined by the Russian occupiers, he says, and they blew it up. This once again demonstrates the cynicism with which Russia treats the people whose land it has captured. The destruction of the dam comes as Ukrainian forces have been making gains on the battlefield, what some believe may be the early stages of Kiev's long-awaited counter-offensive, even though the Ukrainians haven't confirmed that. Russia's army denies blowing up the dam, instead blaming the Ukrainians. Aiming to prevent the offensive operations by the Russian army on this section of the front line, the Kiev regime committed an act of sabotage, or rather a terrorist act, the defense minister said. While the floodwaters are affecting ever more areas around Kherson, upstream the levels are critically low. Around the Zaporizhia power plant, the biggest in all of Europe, which relies on a pond connected to the river for cooling. The International Atomic Energy Agency says so far there's no danger, but that could change. It is therefore vital that this cooling pond, this cooling pond remains intact. Nothing must be done to potentially undermine its integrity. So as you can see there, Allison, an extremely dangerous situation for this part of Ukraine. And, you know, two things really stood out for us today. On the one hand, it was just how fast the water is still rising here in this area, but then also how much shelling is still going on. You know, there's one Ukrainian official who came out today and said he believes that more than a thousand houses are still underwater just in the Ukrainian held area of the flood zone. Allison. Fred, thank you very much for all of the reporting from the ground there. Okay, Miguel, you've been following this story closely. Who stands to win more from blowing up this dam? Who did? Who do we think is responsible? Certainly, the Russians probably stand to gain more. This is—it's an economic disaster. It's an ecological disaster. It's a humanitarian disaster. Literally, right in the middle of the battlefield, the Dnipro River in this area separates the two sides. Russians on the east side, 
Ukrainians on the west side. Uh, the, the, the land on the west side is a little bit higher, so Russian positions, defensive positions on the eastern bank have been flooded. Uh, our Sam Kiley spoke to one uh, Ukrainian who said that they, they could see Russians running, they could see their trenches flooded, there are apparently landmines floating around. So uh, they, maybe they left their the weapons. Ukraine was behind it. So it could be, but it's not very clear yet. Uh, the, there's a lot of experts talking about the, the dam itself. It has been contested for many, many months, uh, if not years. Uh, there was talk on both sides that they were going to do something. The dam is not in great repair, but it's a very, very sturdy dam built in the 1950s, 58, I think. Uh, it is meant to withstand a, a very big missile hit. A, a Ukrainian missile actually hit it last year and didn't do a lot of damage. Most experts seem to think that the exp- if it was an explosion, it would have to come from the inside of the dam, packing a ton of explosives in there uh, in a very tight area, and it would have to blow the dam out. Um, the thing that this does for the Russians, though, it creates essentially a moat a- along that part of Ukraine, because Crimea is just to the south of that. That is what the Ukrainians want to liberate more than anything. The Russians took that in 2014. And that area will be heavily contested. Ukrainians say, we weren't going to go there anyway. They'd have to cross. The Dnipro's a big river to begin with. They'd have to cross the Dnipro. There's not a lot of crossings. They don't have the amphibious ability to, to cross that river very easily. So it's, it's not clear who stands to gain the most. This will be whoever, however this thing settles out, the disaster of this dam will be there for years and years to come. I mean, it, not to mention the nuclear power plant that is cooled by the river, the Zaporizhia plant. Interestingly, that, that power plant is powered down. All the reactors are cold right now, so it doesn't need a lot of water to keep things operational. So it's not and there an, is an there is a cooling pond. Crisis. There's a cool, there's a cooling pond there that they can draw water from for now, so they're okay. they're okay for now. Um, but, yeah, that, that is a, a concern going on. Interestingly, dams in this area twice have been destroyed by invading or retreating forces. In 1941, the Soviets destroyed it when the, when the Germans were coming in. It was farther upriver. And then in 1943, the Germans took over, fixed the dam. In 1943, when they were evacuating, they blew up the dam to stop the Russians from coming to the same area. So this is something that they have seen in this area. The difference now, though, blowing up dams... Is a, is a war crime by the international criminal And courts. there's still a, a major outstanding question, right, how this will affect the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Still an outstanding question. This how huge. the people there are going to be able to now deal with this latest tragedy. I mean, we spent some time, <clears throat> you know, overseas last summer. I was in Ukraine last summer. And, and I remember then everyone was talking about, they were worried about, the winter, freezing out the Ukrainian people in the winter. And the Ukrainian people survived. And the one thing that I came away from that experience was knowing just the resiliency of the Ukrainian people. They've seen so many disasters. They're yet now faced with another one. And, you know, if there's one thing to come away with this is just how strong the Ukrainian people are at seeing and facing adversity. But this is going to affect their agriculture for yeah. years to come, their drinking water. This is... It's too... I mean, it's too and, much. How, how much can people withstand? So you're trying to get out of a flood situation, but mm-hmm. then you're worried about being hit by gunfire or shelling. I mean, I just... The resiliency is otherworldly. I don't know how people are surviving emotionally, mm-hmm. physically, mentally there. Just to see that 
river sweep through is is so devastating. Tens of thousands of people being evacuated on both sides. And And how? How do they get people out? Where are the boats coming from? Well, the Ukrainians are on their side. There's about two dozen villages that are or or population centers that are affected by it so far. And there's, I don't know, maybe about 20,000 people affected in total. And they're trying to move people out. It is not clear on the Russian occupied side whether they have the resources or the ability to move people out or they're just leaving them on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, It's heartbreaking. I wonder why somebody wouldn't claim responsibility for this. If this was a tactical, you know, uh, move in a war, why aren't they claiming? It's literally a war crime. War crime. War crime to bomb a dam, dikes, or uh, uh, electrical, not electrical, uh, nuclear substations. I see. uh, Nuclear facilities. Um, Anything that can cause damage beyond the actual destruction of the object, because this is flooding enormous areas and killing people and destroying entire ways of life. Do you think we'll find out? Because I know that other countries are looking into this. Do you think we'll ever Presumably, find out? they will be able to collect forensic data f- yeah. and, and information from the dam. It's, it's disintegrated over time. Because <clears throat> I was watching this last night, right before the show last night, because that's when the first report started to come out. And there was more dam there. And over the day, the yeah. dam has sort of disintegrated. But they'll still be able to get in there. They'll be able to get gathered information and forensic information and, I think, figure out if there was a bomb placed on the inside or if the dam just failed. It is possible it just failed, but it seems a very faint possibility. And what are the repercussions if they find out who did it? Well, then that if, if it was the Russians, then Putin himself or others could be held liable for, for war crimes. It's another... It's another turn of the screw in this in this conflict that seems to have no end. Of, you know, the Russians have bombed the uh, the, the electrical grid and tried to take out so much infrastructure in Ukraine. This might be another level of that. If the Ukrainians did it, then this may be the indication of what they plan to do. With it may be a feint, it may be a fake, it may be something that they tr- they wanted to do to to make them think that they were now closed off from down there and they have a whole other planet mm. at at. at uh, at the ready. Mm. Thank you very much for explaining all of that really helpful context. Okay, back here. Two of the largest hotels in San Francisco are closing. What's happening in San Francisco? Vanessa's going to explain. Downtown San Francisco dealing with another blow to its economy. Today, Park Hotels and Resorts announcing that it will stop making loan payments on two of its hotels there, Hilton San Francisco Union Square and Park 55 Hotels. These hotels have nearly 3,000 rooms combined. They are expected to remain open, but ultimately under new owners. Since 2020, a number of stores have left San Francisco or announced plans to leave, including Office Depot, Nordstrom, and Whole Foods. Vanessa is following this story. Okay, so why are these hotel groups giving up on these two, like, primo hotels there? They're losing money. They're not making money. The people are not coming. They put out a statement today, and they listed a couple reasons why they are sort of turning these hotels over, hopefully, to new owners who will operate them. One is low occupancy in offices, right? There's not as many people coming into the office, and then there's less foot traffic, less tourists. They also talk about street conditions, which I think is code for crime in the area. That's been a a concern uh, amongst a lot of people. And also the projection for conventions in the area 
is down. There's going to be fewer conventions over the next couple of years going into 2027. And part of the statement, they were just pretty much blatant about it. They said, now more than ever, we believe San Francisco's path to recovery remains clouded and elongated by major challenges. And I just discussed some of those challenges. And they said that because of this, it will negatively impact business and leisure demand and will likely significantly reduce compression in the city for the foreseeable future. So they have major concerns about whether or not people are going to continue to come to San Francisco because of these reasons, many that have been there for a while, but have been exacerbated by the pandemic. So what's happening in San Francisco? I mean, you've laid out some of the things, but there's also, it's not just businesses. Are there fewer people living in San Francisco? Is there more crime? I mean, I know that here on the East Coast, we have, we have this impression, uh-oh, San Francisco is in yeah. complete crisis. And then sometimes... When you live in a place, you see it differently. Is there a way to get a real read from the data on what's happening? If you look at it in terms of residents, so people who are there and who are looking to lead, uh, leave, San Francisco does lead the way in terms of people leaving major cities. So it's San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, Washington, and Boston. That's the list. So you have the most amount of people leaving San Francisco wow. looking to move somewhere else. That is down from April of 2022, so around last year. But the numbers that we're seeing right now are actually in line with pre-pandemic levels. So they spiked, they've come down, but San Francisco, for some reason, maybe it's a bunch of the factors that I discussed, people are looking to leave move somewhere else. A lot of the reasons could be about jobs. You know, Sarah knows more than anyone about the the tech industry there. You know, people are working from home. A lot of companies are leaving, moving to other states. So it could be also people just kind of wanting to change their lifestyle. Maybe the job's not being there like, like they used to be. Does the city have a plan to bring people back and bring momentum back? And if they don't, are the people of San Francisco lobbying them? Are they frustrated? What's that dialogue like? Yeah, I think there's there's been a concerted effort for a long time to tackle housing in the area, right? Bringing in affordable housing for people. We know that homelessness for many, many years has been a big issue, trying to figure out what to do with the homeless population, how to take care of them. But there hasn't been sort of this gold standard or gold star that people have looked towards and said, yes, that's the answer. That's what's going to fix it. I think what you're seeing is a ripple effect right now. You're seeing not as many people coming into the office. So you're seeing occupancy in buildings go down. You're seeing less tourists coming in. So you're not seeing as many conventions and that's ultimately affecting the hotels. And then I think you have residents looking around at everything saying, is this where I want? Is this where I want to be right now? It's also a one industry town. I mean, a, a lot of cities are experiencing similar things after the pandemic. I mean, I'd be sitting at home in my underwear if I could, and, and not going to work. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, you're, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, because it's a one industry town, it's really yeah. been hit hard. Tech's been hit uh, after the pandemic. People aren't coming to the office. People are working from home. People have reprioritized their lives. In San Francisco, because it was expensive to begin with, people are just moving and and i i don't see absent ai or something really taking over that space and and powering the economy yeah i'm not sure what the moves are i think about detroit i know that san francisco's not filing for bankruptcy but i think about detroit and the years that that city really struggled and tried to figure out a way to come back i was in detroit a couple of years ago i was just so impressed with the city Total what, renaissance. The, what yeah. the business community has been able to do for that city has been so impressive i just would not count san francisco out 
at all. I think that there's that there's so much still there. But you know, as you mentioned, you have Nordstrom, huge three hundred thousand square feet of space there, gone. Those jobs will be moving elsewhere. I mean, you're just seeing a lot of vacant space, and that then starts to breed uncertainty among people, residents, but also businesses. Do I want to bring my business there if everyone else is leaving? Do I want to live there if there's nothing around me? But crime is a big question that I think a lot of people point to, oh, there's so much crime in San Francisco. Crime rates are actually what they were pre-pandemic. So yes, they spiked in a lot of other cities in the United States. They did spike. However, it's it's what it was pre-pandemic. So I don't think we can point to crime as the major issue here. And you know what? I, being from California, Southern California, <laughs> however, but the discussion that, that we always have is what is the answer? Right. It's, that is the thing that, and you know, we you're don't sitting, have it. Right. It, it's what Californians have been struggling with. And it's not just San Francisco. Let's be honest. It's LA too. It's Los Angeles. They are dealing with some of the same problems, some of the, the same issues. I mean, the drugs and the homelessness and the, yeah. Correct. And when you sit around and you're talking about it and you're driving on the 101 freeway and you see this tent, you know, encampment and then another one and another one, you realize that these are people, some of these people who need help, but you also realize this, this is doing a lot to, to really hurt some of these communities and everyone is looking for an answer. Yeah. But that kind of brings me quickly to the state of California. How much of this do you think is businesses are fed up with high taxes in California. They can go to states where they can operate their businesses cheaper. Is that part of this at all? I think we've seen a migration, both of homeowners, people living there, and businesses who are looking for better tax breaks, who are looking for cheaper real estate. I think, you know, people have reevaluated their lives, their livelihoods during the pandemic. And I think some of that is people just saying, I can actually be happy somewhere else too. Well, it's easier after the pandemic as well, because not just Detroit, but Pittsburgh and uh, Columbus and all these cities, they have gotten a piece of the tech pie now. And they're paying people. Silicon Prairie is what we call it. They're paying people to come into the state. They're paying for people's moves. Yeah, I mean, maybe San Francisco will have to lower its real estate prices. We can all move there. Maybe that's going to happen. You're welcome, San Francisco. Okay, thank you very much for all that. Okay, meanwhile, this is a fascinating story. Boston police charging a suspect in four rape and sexual assault cases from more than a decade ago. Jason's going to explain how they've cracked this whole case. A New Jersey man is under arrest and charged with sexually assaulting four women in Boston more than a decade ago. These cases had gone cold until investigators used DNA analysis to identify the suspect. Jason has this story. Okay, so how did investigators figure this out after more than 10 years? Well, it's really an incredible story. I mean, because what had happened was, you know, back in Boston some 15 years ago, you had these rapes that were occurring in this neighborhood. Case went cold. So last year, you have some detectives, these investigators who say, look, we've got this DNA. Let's take this DNA and do what some other folks have done. You put it into this DNA genealogical database and see what comes back. And they did. And it worked. Now, what happened was they were able to get some samples back saying, "Okay, this is who we believe any number of these people it could be from this particular family. Investigators say, "Okay, now we can look at this family. And then they do regular detective work. 
who's the right age, who lived in the area at that time. Once they had narrowed it down to their suspect, a man by the name of Matthew Nilo, 35 years old, they said, okay, what we now need is another DNA sample to match. So they put him under surveillance. They followed him, he's now an attorney, to a corporate function. He took a glass, was drinking out of a glass, using utensils. They were watching him. He puts the glass down. He puts the utensils down. They take the glass. They take the utensils. They get their sample. They get their match. They make their arrest. So this is incredible only because you see how something as innocuous as drinking out of a glass can eventually lead you theoretically to finding your suspect, Right. But it also opens the door for so many other cases, so many other situations where they can do this. So this man, Matthew Nilo, now responsible, according to prosecutors, for raping three women and the attempted rape of a fourth woman. You can see him there in court. He faces three counts of aggravated rape, two counts of kidnapping, one count of assault with intent to rape and one count of indecent assault. And just to be clear, so he was basically a serial rapist. um, And then he went dark for 15 years, like for 15 years? They don't think that he he didn't have any crimes in between there? Very good question. Unclear at this point. What we can say is, according to prosecutors, they are linking him to these cases of these unsolved rapes in Boston during that period. But this was, this also came from a, a rape kit that they finally got to. How long did that rape kit sit there or rape kits sit there before they got that initial DNA? Some 15 years. So the 15 years they sat there. Yes. Wow. So so and, and 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 it's not just this case. I mean, I mean, we were talking about this earlier. You think about the case of the Golden State Killer, caught back in 2018, yeah. caught in the same way, caught in the same way. You know, using these genealogical databases, putting that in there, linking to linking it eventually to some of these uh, some of these alleged criminals. It's really fascinating because it does open the door for so many other potential cases that might be out there unsolved cases where they have DNA, whether it be a rape kit or other forms of DNA. And in this case, it wasn't just a rape kit. It was also a glove where one of the victims had tried to scratch out his eyes, but they had, they still had some of that material on some sort of a glove. So is this new? Because it's so effective, it seems. Is this new? Is that why more cases aren't being solved in this way? It is new in some ways. It, It is new in terms of now that we're seeing more, you know, um, the, the FBI, other law enforcement agencies realizing that this is a source yeah. uh, that they can use at their disposal. Dispo- and remember, these are public. These well, are. But they can't get access to all databases. It's, not all, because some, some of, of them, these some of these right. databases, you know, don't aren't going to allow themselves right. to be open to something like this. But the ones that are. Look what we've seen happening. So, so what does the suspect's attorney say about all this? Well, this is a couple. Well, a couple of things. First of all. Uh, denying the allegations and really raising questions and is going to fight in terms of how they were able to get this DNA. And that's interesting, Allison, because there's a question about whether or not this will hold up in court. It's held up in court many, many times before because it's called an abandonment sample. Let's say you smoke a cigarette, throw it away. Chew some gum, throw it away. Throw something out in your trash. You know, it's no longer yours, so to speak. I mean, one man's trash is another man's evidence in some cases. So, um. so basically, so it's in other cases that has been deemed constitutional and legal. They can fetch that something out of the cat out of many the trash scores and hold of it cases. against you. But the lawyers here are saying that that's 
not. You got you to do something. Constitution. You have the, to have something for it. Right, right. You have to do something. Didn't the lawyer said we also want you to hear his side of the story? That's correct. Which Every, seems everyone like, is like, what is that side of the story? Everyone's entitled to have their side right. of the story, uh, but DNA does not lie. Yeah. So what is that going to look like? Is he going to tell it in court? How long is this going to go on? When can we expect some sort of verdict? Well, we are just in the beginning stages of this. He was arraigned last week, right? He has another sort of procedural hearing that's going to happen next week. This could, this could go on for quite some time. Uh, but it should be very interesting to hear if this does happen. I mean, sometimes defense attorneys will say all sorts of things, and then their client never ends up testifying. I mean, we've seen that in many, many cases. It would be very interesting to see what his defense would be in this case, other than, you know, they collected this material illegally. Yeah, DNA has changed the face of policing. I mean, it's, it has, it has completely changed. I did some stuff on the Golden, uh, the Golden State Killer. And, uh-huh. he, you know, they, one of the investigators says that they will be able to take DNA from a crime scene and know who was in the vicinity of that person within three or four days before too long. Plus, Golden State, they were, they were digging through paper files. For years. Yeah, and this, it's all becoming much faster. Yes. It's all computerized And now. then just quickly, is there a room for error then? Let's yeah, say Miguel exactly. commits a crime and my hair's on the scene. Do I get the call 15 years later? You might get the call 15 years later. But again, I think what they're going to be doing is they're going to be looking at a lot of different elements as well. I mean, when you're dealing with certain types of DNA, it would be more specific to Miguel rather than... Than you. Delicately put. I, I like, like the way that. you threw me the bus, though. Thank you very, very much. Very much. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So, as reporters, we can tell you some crazy things happen on live TV. Up next, we're going to show you how one reporter dealt with an obnoxious onlooker. And then we'll share some of our stories. The next time you watch the news, just think about what reporters in the field are dealing with, like this woman. A very loud crowd here at T-Mobile Arena. Obviously, Vegas fans enjoying the less than ideal night for the Panthers. After falling to the Knights, no, 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 by CBS Miami sports reporter Samantha Rivera, all while ma- maintaining her composure and handling that unruly hockey fan at the Stanley Cup Finals. Rivera tweeted late Monday night, quote, listen, I don't give a damn what team you're rooting for. Get the hell out of my face when I'm working and respect that I'm here to do my job. Excited to get back home to some classy Panthers fans for game three. <laughs> oh my Good for you, that was awesome. We're back with our panel of reporters. Okay, so let's hear about your unscripted, um, embarrassing moments on live shots. Um, I swallowed a bug. You did? I did. Local what? news, swallowed a bug. It flew right into my mouth. And how did you handle that? I coughed. <laughs> no, I coughed and I laughed and I just kept going. I was a little shocked that I... Swallowed oh, a bug. Oh my gosh! And did the anchor notice it? Say they, anything? They all noticed it. They replayed <laughs> it on the eleven o'clock run. <laughs> I wish we had that. All right, we do have one of Vanessa. You had a bug incident. Okay, so speaking of bugs, oh dear, this is a live shot that I did with you in 2019. Oh, I can't wait. I think we have some video of it just to play it. Um, so we're, I'm doing this live shot with you. Here I am in Iowa, uh, 6 a.m. in the morning, and I'm talking to you probably about, 
I don't know, the election or something. As I'm doing this live shot, I feel something crawling up my leg. Oh, dear. You can't see it here. But crawling up my leg is a huge but, bug under my pants. Yes, oh. but look at how composed you are. And I'm like, there's something on my leg. There's something on my leg. The minute this live shot finished, yes. I was like a hot potato, <laughs> jumping around, shaking it off. Finally, I reached like under my pant leg, yes. grabbed it, threw it across <gasps> that parking lot, and did not go look at but it. But look at how professional you are. You're not wow. even moving a muscle. It was like, tickle, I, tickle, 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 oh, tickle, tickle. Oh my gosh, I would never have known. I had to keep it composed for you because you so <laughs> impressive it was probably two to three inches so i don't know what it was impressive i remember one, reporting and like <laughs> under a, a, one of those tents that they set up for us and uh-huh. at one point like the rain just like collapsed down onto yeah. my shoulder and i kept reporting and people were impressed but that's not as good as a bug like that's not as good as keeping your composure while a bug is crawling up your pant leg that's a tough yeah one. like on rain the, water on the inside on my skin. yeah what did you have <laughs> Uh, well, the, the most obvious one, I guess, was during the Freddie Gray coverage, and we were covering a protest, and somebody, we were walking along with the protesters, they were angry, one or two of them tried to grab the mic oh, from me, and yeah. we were we had a pooling contest. Yeah, that's a big job. Now, I held onto the mic, uh, and he and I be, actually became friends later on, <laughs> and because everybody in the neighborhood <laughs> saw that, yeah. and that I didn't overreact to it, I became everyone's friend after that as well. So yeah. I love okay, we're Baltimore. We're going to end on that love happy Baltimore. ending. Very well done. <laughs> very well done. All right. Thank you guys very much for sharing all of those. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, the new scientific discovery that could change our understanding of evolution. Evidence of a mysterious human species discovered 100,000 years before modern humans. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.